Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today, and a big thank you for your patience with the delay of last week's episode, The Wasp Woman. Um, But very excited for this week's movie. Uh, How are you doing, Ben? Well, I mean, we've been having some struggles. (laughs) Literally? Here. Literally right before recording the podcast, uh, I was down in the basement doing laundry and I was like, oh, I need to check the furnace filter because we need to replace it. I go in and our humidifier is leaking. And by leaking, I mean dripping water everywhere. The floor is soaked. It is a mess. It's dealt with. We are now recording. Just another day in paradise for the castle scream scene. Yeah, it's it's been a lot. Like, I don't think, like, we've missed some weeks lately, and we've never really done that as much before, as frequently before. And, like, you've been struggling with things. I've been struggling with things. We've had some, like, difficult events in our lives and some mental health struggles. We did our taxes lately and that sucks. <laughs> I like that that follows mental health. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like it led me to have a total breakdown about my own self-worth as a person. Um, so it's just been really hard lately. And I feel like I've been on the upswing this weekend, but I really like, I need my brain to learn that someone not replying to me doesn't mean they hate me and it just won't learn that lesson and no matter how many times like it's the same thing when i go to visit like people and i'm like super anxious and i'm like oh you know what if they're angry about something i said from the last time i saw them and then like you see them and you have a great time and everything's wonderful and there's no problems And you're like, oh, okay, no, cool. Everything's cool. And then it's like a couple days later and I'm like, no, that person definitely hates me. Like my brain just doesn't hold on to the lesson and it sucks. Um, Anyways, been on the upswing. Obviously the humidifier breaking is annoying, especially when you owe money to the government for other things and just (laughs) everything's so expensive, Sarah, uh, all the time. All the time. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. Before we dive into the podcast, let me share a piece of good news. Okay. Or like something that was nice today. Okay. Um, last week was my mom's birthday, but she was too busy. So we hung out today and we had a really lovely time. It was beautiful outside. I took her to the cat cafe and then out to brunch. And it was just like a really nice time. Lots of people were out and about walking their dogs, enjoying the nice weather. Uh, it feels like... This was a spring day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I'm going to hold on to that and and use that to carry me through what I'm sure is going to be just a fantastic movie mm-hmm. as well. I think mm-hmm. this will be the cherry mm-hmm. on top of a really fantastic day. <laughs> what are we watching, Ben? Well, Sarah, today we are watching Beast from Haunted Cave from 1959, directed by Monty Hellman. Ooh, that's a good name for a horror director. Sure. Damn. Not his real last name. Well, yeah, he chose it for this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So the impetus for this movie being made basically started with the fact that by 1959, uh, the Cormans, Roger and Gene, film group, as they are now known, had gotten really sick of shooting in Bronson Canyon and the Los Angeles Arboretum. Fair enough. You know, new locations in other parts of the country would provide like variety of scenery, increase that production value, also allow for the hiring of cheaper non-LA crews. You know. Yeah, classic. So after corresponding with the South Dakota Chamber of Commerce... Uh, film group decided to shoot their next film in the Black Hills region of South Dakota using like disused 
gold mines. Oh, that like, does not sound safe. Yeah, like shooting in like old mines that were no longer used. Yeah. I have some facts for you, some fun facts. Okay. Okay. Um, so those gold mines would have been from the gold rush that happened in South Dakota. Came and went, you know. Uh, they are called the Black Hills because of how dark the evergreen trees look from a mm. distance compared to the like prairie landscape around it. So sure. it almost looks black in comparison. And I'm going to mention this, even though, you know, our American listeners might be like, yeah, we know this. I didn't know this. The Black Hills are where the national monuments Mount Rushmore and the Crazy Horse Memorial are. Okay, yeah, I didn't know that. Like, I, I knew Mount Rushmore was in South Dakota, but I didn't know what mountain range it was part of, so... Can I tell you a really embarrassing fact? Okay. I thought Mount Rushmore was in Washington. I mean, I feel like from a foreigner perspective... Now, do you mean Washington State or Washington, D.C.? Uh, I know Washington, D.C. is not really anywhere near mountains, so yeah. I mean Washington State. Okay. Though I would not be able to point to where Washington State is on a map. I just know Washington, D.C. is not in it. Washington State is directly beneath British Columbia. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, there, there could be mountains there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyways, no, I feel like from a foreigner perspective, that kind of like makes sense. Um but no, uh, yes, Mount Rushmore is in South Dakota. I just didn't know it was um, the Black Hills. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that all fits together. Yeah. I, I could dig more into fun we facts could talk about caves. More. But the like... thing is, like, we could talk more about the Black Hills, <laughs> but the facts would stop being fun really quickly. Yes. Yes. So to direct this new, exciting South Dakota movie, uh, Roger Corman hired Monty Hellman. And Monty Hellman was born Monty Himmelbaum in New York in 1929, and he moved with his parents to L.A. when he was five years old. He graduated from Stanford University in 1951, and he became the director of this, like, experimental theater company called the Stumptown Players. And in 1954, he married Barbara Morris, who was one of the actresses in yeah. that company. And Hellman ended up meeting Roger Corman through Morris um, because from like, I think like 1957 for a number of years onward, like she just exclusively worked with Roger Corman in terms of film. Yeah, well, we just saw her. Right. Uh, she was in Bucket of Blood and she was in Wasp Woman. Hellman met Roger Corman through Morris and Hellman convinced Roger to invest $1,000 in the Stumptown Players, which is like $10,000 today. Yeah. In 1958, Barbara Morris then left Monty Hellman for Roger Corman. Oh, no. Um, she didn't marry Roger Corman, but she divorced Monty Hellman. And soon after that, the Stumptown Players failed. Like the theater company went under, basically. Uh, so upon hearing that, uh, Corman offered Hellman a job to direct Beast from Haunted Cave, giving him $1,000 and a handshake deal. <laughs> Hellman would later go on to say that Roger's handshake was better than most people's contracts. Oh, yeah. No, Corman seems like a man of his word. He is very upfront about what you're getting. A thousand dollars to make a movie. Hellman would continue to work with Corman for the next 15 years, you know, on a lot of films, learning how to make commercially viable movies on a tight budget while still maintaining a personal vision. Um, he made a number of like westerns starring Jack Nicholson in the 1960s, and Jack Nicholson was in westerns. Yeah, before he became someone anyone gave a shit about. Yeah, no, that's wild. I guess that makes sense given the ranking of westerns in Hollywood yeah. prestige. Yeah, stuff. Um, yeah. And then Hellman made like a bunch of um, kind of like crime movies in the 1970s. Um, he also worked as an editor and a second unit director. Um, and he was one of the executive producers of Reservoir Dogs. Oh. Yeah. Okay, cool. In 2011, he began teaching the film directing program at CalArts, and he passed away in 2021 at age 91. Wow, that's a good long run. Yeah, so what's wild is, like, 15 years from 1959 gives you, like, 1974, 
And I think Barbara Morris and Roger Corman broke up around 1967, which, which means that like Roger Corman stole this guy's wife. Then they became friends and then their friendship outlasted the romance. Like that's not how that normally works, you know? <laughs> I mean, I guess that speaks to how great it is to work with Roger Corman. I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, to pen the screenplay, Roger brought on his regular writer, Charles B. Griffith, and he basically told Griffith to base the screenplay on an earlier film that the two of them had made in 1957 called Naked Paradise. And Naked Paradise was basically like Key Largo if Key Largo was about robbing a pineapple plantation in Hawaii. Okay. Um, so Corman basically told Griffith to do Naked Paradise but in a gold mine in South Dakota and add a monster. Uh, Hellman would later comment that like Key Largo was one of Roger Corman's favorite movies and that throughout his career, he just kept making different versions of Key Largo. <laughs> now Griffith wasn't sure how to add a monster to Key Largo. So he decided to make it like a monster that like kidnaps and cocoons people uh, rather than like, going and like killing them directly so that it could become this like threatening presence rather than like an active threat. Right. So okay. almost like the monster is the hurricane, I guess. Sure. Yeah. It's like keeping you trapped in the cave. That's interesting. <laughs> I'm so curious about this movie now. So to justify the costs of heading out to South Dakota, uh, cause you know how Roger Corman be, uh, Roger directed a World War II movie called Ski Troop Attack um, with the same cast and crew. Uh, Beast shot first, then they had uh, a day off, and then they shot Ski Troop Attack with the whole process taking five weeks for the two films. That's a long time for a Corman film. <laughs> um, nice that he gave them a day off. Right. <laughs> One day to learn the lines for the yeah, other Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Uh, the movie's star, Michael Forrest, had previously appeared in The Viking Women and the Sea Serpent for Corman. But around this time, he was mostly appearing on TV in westerns. He would continue to act in TV through to the 1970s. Star Trek fans would know him for playing Apollo from the episode Who Mourns for Adonis. After a long TV career, in the late 1970s, Forrest switched to being primarily a voice actor, including like in the early days of anime coming over to the U S like a lot of the early 1970s and eighties anime dubs. Wow. Um, he worked on shows like Lupin the third mobile suit Gundam, Golgo 13, Megazone 23, fist of the North star, dirty pair, Akira, uh, Megalopolis, Ninja scroll, Macross, Gatchaman, uh, street fighter two, ghost in the shell, Trigon, blackjack, Power Rangers Lightspeed Rescue, which was a voice role, but not an anime. Um, Cowboy Bebop, Dot Hack, Appleseed, Samurai Champloo, Paprika. Yeah, you, you don't need to list all of his. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> uh, though for a lot of his older work, his work has been like replaced by newer dubs. Like a lot of yeah. anime dubbed before 2000, when it gets released now, gets redubbed. Um, yeah. Because a lot of anime is dubbed non-union michael forrest used pseudonyms like alfred thor for most of his anime roles <laughs> that's an amazing name frank wolf appeared as the horny delivery man in wasp woman uh, but here he is promoted to a lead role uh, both here and in ski troop attack uh, in ski troop attack michael forrest is like the like by the book like unit commander and Frank Wolf is like the, like more, uh, like a little bit like the disobedient sergeant sure. kind of thing. I like that Corman is basically putting together almost like a, a theater group with like regular people he can pull from. Yeah. Like I'm, it reminds me of like Orson Welles and pulling from his core of actors. Yeah, exactly. Um, in 1960, Frank Wolf appeared as the villain in Atlas, which was Roger Corman's take on the like sword and sandals genre that was really popular around this time, um, which had Michael Forrest as Atlas and uh, actually shot in Greece. 
Oh, sweet. And um, after shooting, Corman recommended that Wolf like stay in Europe, where he found a niche as a character actor in Jolly and Spaghetti Westerns. Okay. In 1968, he played Brett McBain, uh, who is the husband of Claudia Cardinale's character in Once Upon a Time in the West, who's like killed by Henry Fonda before she ever arrives at the homestead. Yeah, the really ginger guy. Yeah, exactly. In the early 1970s, uh, his wife uh, separated from him. They had moved out to Italy together and were living in Rome. And that led him into a long depression crisis which ended in Wolf committing suicide at the age of 43 in 1971. Uh, two of his films were released after his death uh, with his voice provided by Michael Forrest. Okay. Other notables in the cast uh, include Richard Sinatra, the cousin of Frank Sinatra, <laughs> and Lene Allstrand, who had been Playmate of the Month for July 1958. Now, Paul Blaisdell refused to design and create the monster for Corman for this movie uh, for the same reason that he's been turning down a lot of that work lately, which is like Corman doesn't pay him enough money. But Corman keeps reaching out. That's that's nice of him. Sure. Uh, so actor Chris Robinson, the stuntman chosen to play the monster, uh, ended up making the monster suit himself. Uh, he named it Humphreys. And he based it on the look of a hanging fly without wings. Um, and he made it by building like a plywood frame that he then added aluminum strips to. And then he covered the frame in chicken wire and then wrapped it in sheets and muslin. Uh, and then he soaked it in vinyl paint to waterproof it. He made the headpiece out of aluminum wire encased in steel wire and muslin. Uh, and then he put putty on it to attach crepe hair to it uh, before adding spun glass and Christmas tree tinsel to give it a kind of cobweb look. This sounds terrible, Ben. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so Monty Hellman thought it looked like it had been made for $2 uh, and decided to, like, you know, the old standby of keep the monster in shadow and don't show it a lot. Uh, now, Robinson himself would actually go on to roles on a lot of prominent soap operas uh, like General Hospital and The Bold and the Beautiful. Uh, while he was on General Hospital, he starred in a series of very famous Vicks TV commercials where he would say, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Oh. Shooting on Beast from Haunted Cave lasted 13 days and was grueling for the cast and crew. You know, Hellman's never shot a movie before. He gets sent out. He's got 13 days, and they are shooting out in snow in the mountains. Um, the temperature was minus 10 Fahrenheit, which is minus 23 Celsius. Oh, fuck. Oh, no. Uh, so they I was going to say minus 10. That's not anything. <laughs> yeah, no, minus 23. They experienced equipment failure because of the cold, uh, so like cameras and sound equipment breaking down. Um, there were also cave-ins uh, caused by no. like guns fired in the mine. Oh my god! No one was hurt. Nothing bad ever happened. But like the crew was on edge because yeah, they would like fire off the blanks in the guns or whatever, and like bits of the mine would collapse from the sound. Um, oh my god! Oh my god! The air in the mine became stale at one point. Um, they were supposed to be able to pump fresh air into the mine from outside the mine, but the equipment they got to do that never worked. And it was snowing the whole time. No. Oh my God, Ben, this gives me so much anxiety. Uh, Monty Hellman later said about this shoot that, um, I probably made more mistakes than the average first time filmmaker. I didn't have help and wouldn't take help. I had to do it myself. But after that, I lost all interest in theater and never went back. He's like, this is terrible. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> The film was shot for $30,000. Uh, it made around $50,000 at the box office with Corman giving Hellman 2% of the profits, uh, wow. which came out to 400 bucks. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing that leads to you working with the guy for another 15 years, right? Yeah. Beast from Haunted Cave was released on double bill with The Wasp Woman on October 30th, 1959. Uh, like that film, a new prologue was shot for it by Monty Hellman in 1961 to lengthen the picture for television. 
The film received mixed to negative reviews upon release and has many home video releases due to its public domain status. I recommend the DVD from Synapse Films if you're looking for a physical media copy, uh, but we are going to be watching it off our YouTube playlist. Great. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along with us, you can find that playlist on our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Beast from Haunted Cave from 1959, directed by Monty Hellman. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Beast from Haunted Cave from 1959, directed by Monty Hellman. Uh, Sarah, what did you think? Well, a big thing against this movie is that as intrigued as I was about Key Largo on a mountain, right? Um, I didn't enjoy Key Largo, oh, if you recall. Oh, I don't recall. So... <laughs> Uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of movies where it's like, let's watch these people be terrible to each other. That's as true. Tensions rise. That's true. You are not a fan of that kind of movie. Uh, and that's what this movie is. Yeah. So it was fine. See, like, what I, did you think? I think accounting for the low budget and first time director that this is a pretty good little movie. Yeah. I, I was impressed. Um, I can tell you what I'm not impressed by. Mm. Some people's names. Oh, yeah. That's going to be a little tricky. And the way they describe some Native Americans. Yeah, that's also unfortunate. Uh, so let me let me lay down what happens. Sure. Uh, let me go through the cast. We have Alex, who is the leader of this group of criminals. Yes. We have his secretary, who is unfortunately named Gypsy. She's also, like, basically his, like, gun mall. Her story is she's the secretary, but she's his girlfriend. However, they have this, like, ongoing gag of, like, calling each other Charles. Yes. So I'm going to be calling this character Charles. Okay, yeah, if that helps you be more comfortable with that. Yeah. Then we have Gil, who... um is not part of the crime gang. He is a ski instructor. Um, we have Marty, who is Frank Sinatra's cousin. Yes. And one of the uh, gunslingers for Alex. Byron is the second gunslinger for Alex, uh, who is characterized by always being hungry. He's like he's like from a different movie. He's like a wacky cartoon character. Yeah, it's, it's like... He's like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon <laughs> character. We have Natalie, who is a barmaid, and then we have Small Dove, who is a housekeeper, who, uh, if you can't guess based on the name, is uh, Native American. Although I, I will say, I think she's being like played by an actual Native American woman. Yeah, well, like when your budget is so low, like right, and you're actually out in South Dakota. Yeah, you know? it makes sense. Yeah. Um. So you know, small appreciated things. Hmm. Okay. So. We are set in Deadwood, South Dakota, where Alex and his crew are on a ski trip with a local instructor, Gil. But of course, the, all of that is a cover for Alex and his gang to pull a gold heist. Now, the whole plan that they are going to do, Marty will plant a bomb in uh, the abandoned gold mine one night, and then it will go off at 9 a.m. the next day. Charles and Gil, uh, basically to keep Gil out of the way, uh, Charles will be up at the top of the mountain with him doing like a little ski uh, ski lesson. And then joining them later is Alex, Byron, and Marty after they rob the gold. Yeah, I think it's like they're trying to, like the idea being that like the authorities would be drawn away from the vault because of the disaster, right? Yes. And um, they are planning to head to Gil's cabin, which is like out in the middle of nowhere, like a day and a half away. And from there, they will be picked up by a plane. Well, it's uh, the night where they have to go plant the bomb. And Marty 
goes up to do that, but he also brings along the barmaid Natalie up to the mines. Um, now it's unclear whether he's doing this as a cover story if he gets caught or just because, you know, Natalie's hot. Yeah, she's our uh, playmate of the month. Um, so he goes to set the bomb and he passes this weird wispy egg, but he's like, eh, whatever. I don't know. Maybe that's what gold looks like. And he sets the bomb and then he comes back, starts making out with Natalie, and then they are attacked by some kind of creature. Now, Natalie is fully taken and Marty manages to get away. He gets back to Alex and the crew, but he's like really in shock and he's not willing to talk about what happened. But Alex is at least able to confirm that, no, the bomb is set. It's ready to go off. So next morning, 9 a.m., the bomb explodes. Um, It does happen to kill a local who was out looking for Natalie, um, but otherwise everything seems to go off without a hitch. The bomb explodes, it pulls the authorities away, um, they rob the bank, and then they meet up later with Gil and Charles, and then they head to his cabin. Uh, now, they do need to camp overnight outside en route. Uh, they don't build a shelter or anything. They just lay down in the snow. <laughs> totally <laughs> realistic. And Marty is standing watch, and he keeps believing that um, they're being followed by the creature. He believes that it's like it has a taste for his blood and it's like out right. to get him. Yeah. But again, he's like refusing to tell anyone about it. Uh, he's just like, there's something watching us and goes out and like shoots at random things and comes back and he's like, yeah, it's not there anymore. Like he, he's basically appearing to everyone else as if he's losing his mind. I do sympathize with him because it does seem like Alex is not the kind of boss who like listens or respects what his underlings have to tell him so yeah well okay so we get to the cabin and tensions are continuing to run high um at the cabin we meet gill's housekeeper small dove um who at first scares byron because byron's racist and uh, a little misogynist um but eventually uh byron comes around to liking small dove because of her cooking basically (laughs) now there's a big snowstorm coming in so that's going to delay the plane so gil has managed to put two and two together of like because of like radio news um that these guys stole gold and they're out here and they are probably going to plan to kill me and uh i need to get out of here um tensions are also running high because charles she drinks too much, but also she uh, keeps trying to, like, get with Gil right in front of Alex. Kind of to stir up trouble, but also because she, like, wants to get away from Alex. Uh, you know, you've seen Key Largo. You know the deal. Yeah. Have you seen any mobster movie where the, like, main girl is, like, stuck in her position and, like, acting out in different ways? You, you know what Charles yeah. is doing. Some very standard noir shit. Yeah. So Gil plans to leave what like that night to head to town for the authorities. Charles joins him, but they can't fully make it to town because the snowstorm. So they decide to take shelter in a nearby cave. Haunted cave. Yes, he explicitly calls it a haunted cave, which is like that's part of the name of the movie. Meanwhile, Byron was sent to like follow Charles, but Small Dove kind of like purposefully distracts him by like trying to make out and then as like they are arguing small dove gets attacked by the mysterious creature um and she gets taken byron does get attacked as well um and so then marty like kind of is like yeah see i told you there was a thing and it's like no you didn't really tell us there is a thing but byron he wants to go rescue small dove so then he heads out to try to go find small dove And then meanwhile, meanwhile, mean, meanwhile, um, Marty and Alex are sitting around and they're like, hey, where did everyone go? Oh, I bet Gil went to get the authorities. Oh, I bet Charles went with him. Oh, we got to go after them. Uh, I'm going to really stick it to Gil for stealing my girl. Well, they couldn't get far in this blizzard. Let's go to the cave. Uh, Oh, hey, I found these these flare guns that will burn them alive. (laughs) Perfect. So everyone's heading to the cave. Getting there first is Byron. He manages to get there and see that Small Dove is like cocooned up in some webs. Um, She is alive but weak. 
Uh, Natalie is also here, um, alive but incredibly weak and basically just being fed upon for her blood. And uh, Small Dove describes her as mindless. So Byron starts to try to cut Small Dove out. He gets attacked by the monster. And then next thing we see that he is like netted, webbed up. Um, and then he and Small Dove are like attacked by the strange creature. Then we see Gil and Charles make it to the cave. They start kind of going in and they interrupt the creature feeding on Byron. They, you know, unload their guns. And um, at one point, Charles is throwing rocks at it to kind of like get it away from Gil. As she is running away, she runs into Alex and Marty, who force her back in to take them to Gil. They get attacked by the monster. Um, Alex is just straight up like, murked and um marty manages to two-hand double fist flare guns twice into the monster which then like sets it fully alight um but he does succumb to his injuries and as gill and charles leave the cave we see a bonfire of burning <laughs> creature and it screams coming over uh the text of the end now, if you think, wow, that sounds really interesting, I kind of want to watch that. In my opinion, I don't think it's worth it, but I think it would be worth seeing the design of this creature. I think it's a pretty neat design. Yeah, I thought the monster actually looked surprisingly good after like how I described it being built. It has um, like these long vine-like arms yeah it's got like big daddy long legs kind of pincer arms and like the way it appears to walk really reminds me of um some animatronic kind of puppet things you see where it's like people who are walking on all fours but like on stilts yeah. so they have spindly front legs and back legs and the face is completely alien like i think it looks so different than what I was anticipating because I think I was figuring it would look more humanoid. Right. Like a Paul Blaisdell monster. I think that the shadowy black and white photography like certainly helps because it obscures maybe like realizing like, oh, that's Christmas tree tinsel uh, or like, oh, hey, you can kind of see the guy inside or whatever. Like that's all very downplayed. But yeah, um, Humphreys, uh <laughs> Oh, is that its name? Yeah, Humphreys is the name that um, Chris Robinson, the performer, gave it, who also made the suit. And, like, I think Humphreys comes across quite well. And, yeah, honestly, like, it looks like a, like, weird 1980s Jim Henson creature puppet that would, like, inspire, like, a creepy monster in a Guillermo del Toro movie, like, 20 years later. Except that it's just, like, one dude <laughs> in, like, this thing. Yeah. Uh, which makes it pretty impressive. I will say it definitely benefits from the choice to not show it much mm -hmm. um, and to kind of keep it in shadow and in like kind of close up so you can't see the full thing. I think that helps it feel larger than it probably actually is. Yeah. Um, so I think that that was the correct choice that Hellman made while at the same time acknowledging it's a neat design and I think they pulled it off in the way that it is used. And I think that while they, you know, are clearly making the decision to keep it off camera, they avoid a problem we see often with these movies, which is that like by only showing mostly just the arms uh, for most of the movie, it means that even while not showing a lot of the monster, they're able to keep things like the head and body a reveal to the end so that it does feel like we see more of it in the main confrontation and it feels like we see like enough of it in that main confrontation for it to like have an impact. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like they're still trying to like avoid showing it even in the parts of the movie where you should be seeing it. And the way the head is feels very um, disconcerting. Yeah. And the way it like moves across people as it's like eating them and stuff. They, it's very successful and feeling very, very alien. What's um, kind of odd this time around is like I've knocked these movies in the past for being real vague on like where the monster comes from. And like this movie is equally vague, like the characters don't care, but I didn't 
mind it as much here. Like it's just a big scary cave monster. Well, because these aren't scientists. Right. These aren't like miners who would be, you know, knowledgeable about the mines and know that, oh, we disturbed an egg or something. Right. These are just criminals. Like Alex literally says, like, I don't give a fuck <laughs> if it came from space. Right. Like, I'm just here to get my gold. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really good point, Sarah, that that is the difference is that these are not characters who would care. Um, I have a real sweet spot for stories like this that kind of start in one genre and then become something else because like fantastical elements intrude. Um, I really, that just, I don't know. I just, (laughs) I love it every time I see it. Um, That kind of like bait and switch almost. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I always talk about how I want to see a Godzilla movie that's about like, you know, a middle-aged salary man who's like down on his luck and like, you know, he gets fired from his job and it's just like a straight like family kitchen sink drama until the moment the monster attacks kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think Hellman's directing is pretty good um, considering it's his first time film directing. He's very familiar with theater, but I think you know, very impressive for that. Very impressive considering the on location and like the weather, the cold, the temperature, the things that I would call out that are really helping him is the cinematography and like the lighting. Part of that could just be like Corman has a really good team that is in his network. Hmm. So he knows like who to pull for a good cinematographer and like a director works very closely with a cinematographer uh, so as much as Hellman would be like, well, this is what I want. And I'm I'm not going to take help for my directing, as you kind of described in the context setting. Like a cinematographer would still be like, okay, to achieve that, these are the things we want to do to paint with light. Totally. Um, so I think that Hellman had a really good team with him. I will say that the two places that needed work were editing and pacing. For sure. It helps that he's a theater director. Because ultimately the like Key Largo setup, because yeah, that that's a play, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, and it's very like obviously a play, right? Like it's it's very much the kind of thing that works on stage. This is very identifiable as a Key Largo rift. Like if I didn't tell you, you'd still I would figure be like, it hey, out. is this a? Um, and I think the other reason why it helped to have a theater director in here is while he clearly like doesn't quite understand how to block for a film or like that you shouldn't do proscenium shots. And he clearly like doesn't quite understand, like I think sound in some Mm. spots where like characters are too quiet because they're just too far away from the camera. I do think he's well suited to directing these actors because Mm -hmm. of that theater experience, which means that the cast is able to pull off the kind of like pot boiler, seamy human interest stuff that Corman and Griffith always love to like throw into these scripts. Yeah, that's a really good point because as much as like Charles, Alex, and even Gil are providing like this like drama and like a little bit of soap opera-ness mm-hmm. to it, it never got too hammy. Right. Right. And I think that speaks th- to the director and like his familiarity with uh, a little bit of ham-fisted drama when it comes to theater. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you need actors who can pull off a certain tone to pull off that kind of like hard-boiled sort of thing. Um, you know, with Key Largo, it's like, well, you've got Edward G. Robinson, you've got Humphrey Bogart, you've got Lauren Bacall, and like those are your like hard-boiled people, right? Yeah. And I think that Michael Forrest and... Frank Wolf and Sheila Clark do a really good job of like stepping into those roles. The cast acquits themselves very well. Sheila Clark uh, didn't really do much beyond this and Ski Troop Attack, but I think she portrays her character very well. She has kind of that Lauren Bacall flavor to her. Um, She's bringing it in on purpose. Oh, totally, yeah, totally. I think uh, she knows what she's trying to do here. Yeah, and I think she manages to like portray that you know stock character that she's playing of like that gangster girlfriend who wants out really well i think michael forrest manages to somehow not be dull in what is 
almost literally a boy scout role like his they call him cowboy yeah like his whole deal is like he's handsome he enjoys being out in nature and he's like independent and but also bland as hell yeah they're like well what do you do for fun up here and he's like we'll read a book what books oh like the encyclopedia there's something interesting on every page and it's like (laughs) sir you are the dullest man around. He's the he's the uh, Rene Jean Page guy in this movie, right? The Bridgerton guy. Don't call him boring. <laughs> but that's what I mean. Like, like this is why he's like appealing to Charles. Is like he like she's like, do people like this actually exist? Like he's so clean cut and square jaw. Yeah. And like, okay. Okay. You know, lawful. I see good. what you were saying. I thought you were saying that that character was boring. And he's no, like, I was saying that like, they have the same kind of like, you know, Adam West, Batman, like almost <laughs> too ridiculous, like goodness to them. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I think Frank Wolf's villain here, you know, shows a lot of potential in Frank Wolf. Like he's not Edward G. Robinson, but like, He's got potential. For me, for my money, I think Wally Campo, who plays Byron, goes a little bit overboard with his character's quirkiness. He's not actually bad, but it's, it's just a little much. It's just a little much. Like it's a little like, like Alex in his interaction with every other character is clearly a guy who like has no patience for other people's tomfoolery, right? Like Charles's whole job in the heist is basically to flirt with Gil, but she's flirting with Gil and he's like, Hey, knock it off. And like, you know, she kisses Gil and he's like, Hey Gil. And like punches him and like, stay away from my girl. And like Marty's being like, there's a monster out there. And Alex is like, you don't know what you're talking about. Whereas like Byron's out here just like saying whatever he wants and doing whatever goofy comic relief shit he wants and just getting away with it. Cause he's the Brad Pitt to his George Clooney. Ben. <laughs> Of course, Alex will have time for this tomfoolery. <laughs> it should be called Byron foolery. Come on. Um, but I I don't know if I have much else to say about this movie because, like, I I can recognize that they did an all right job with, like, the drama, but I, I don't have a lot of patience for mm-hmm. a lot of that. Patience is maybe not the right word. It's just not my taste. Um, and so I... I don't know if I can speak to whether it's attempts at tension building worked because I was just like, can we get, can we get to the fireworks factory? That's going to be the subtitle for the podcast. I will agree with you that I think the movie's biggest weakness is that the characters are a little too one note and their various arcs are all a little too telegraphed. Yeah. Um, And that makes it a little, tiresome to be like trapped with them in this situation um it helps that the movie's only 65 minutes long so you can't you know complain too much but i think what works in something like the lion in winter or key largo for being trapped with those characters is like really on point writing that is like Mm -hmm. really sharp and having actors with like enough charisma that like they're just they keep your eyes glued to the screen. And I think these actors are good enough to portray these characters well, but they're not quite like, oh, I'd watch this person in anything kind of, you know, yeah, good. Yeah, and I, I don't, I never really felt the um, kettle boiling over. They bit. kind of almost start at too high of a pitch because yeah. like, the whole thing with the Alex Gill Charles like triangle is just like way too obvious from the jump. And it just kind of stays at like the same frequency, the same level of tension the whole movie. I think I would agree with you on that. Yeah. Whereas like in Key Largo, like like in particular, you you feel the the kettle whistling and it it boiling over and stuff. Um yeah, I think part of the reason why this movie had trouble with that is because it had to shoehorn in a monster into Key Largo. Right, sure. Um, which, you know, doesn't quite work for that, but I think it like it was a an all right attempt. Bringing it back to the monster, yeah. um, the cocooned victims thing uh, feels like a significant precursor to like the Alien franchise. 
you know, yeah. the whole thing of going back into the monster's den and finding the people you thought it had killed, like cocooned up to the wall and like you try to rescue them and then the monster gets you like. I think the special effects for how they covered them in like the goo. Um, when we see Natalie, when she's like pretty much dead, like they put in effort to make her look gaunt and like it's it's unnerving and then the sounds the monster makes particularly when it's like attacking um, before it even gets set on fire like it is not what you expect like it's like screeching and shrieking and and howling it's like a screech howl yeah it's just it's it's well done in in the sense that like it feels like something we've never really seen before and it feels it reminds me of some of the sounds that the thing makes in John Carpenter's right. Yeah. Like no, that I high agree. pitched weirdness. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, while obviously the foundation of this story, the, the skeleton, the structure is a noir crime story. I think by the end of the movie, the horror element has taken over enough for this movie to be rankable. Yeah, I would agree. Cool. Do we want to move on to ranking then? Yeah. Awesome. I was really expecting the monster to be the worst thing about this movie. I was not expecting it to be like, oh, damn. The best part, right, really. Yeah. So because of this movie's genre blend, um, it made it a little difficult for me to rank it. Um, it kind of had this thing of like, well, does the crime stuff make it like novel enough that it should go above more rote horror films? Or does it make it not horror enough to like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, where I ended up going, um, I just kind of ended up picking a spot. Oh. Um, I started at um, Abominable Snowman. Uh, yeah, at I 71. can see that. Yeah. yeah. Just like the same similar, like we're Snow. trapped in the elements with this thing and the tension rising. But I ended up going way down. <laughs> yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> From there. I found at number 120, Corman's The Undead, uh, which is the like... Travel back in time. Bridie Murphy one. Yeah. And that one's just like so weird. I kind of like it a little bit more just because it's so out there. But right below The Undead is Monster of Piedras Blancas, which is the like cheap knockoff creature from the Black Lagoon with the lighthouse. Oh, yeah. And I, th I think I liked this better. I think this ended up working better for me than what was in Monster of Piedras Blancas. So I picked out 121 as a spot for this. Interesting. Okay. So I have a little bit of a range and I'm like just a little higher than you. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I wasn't really sure where to start. So I thought, well, let's look at where the Wasp Woman was because this was a double feature. Fair. Uh, to remind folks, Wasp Woman is at 101. And I was like, this doesn't feel like a good spot for Beast from Haunted Cave. My brain just short-circuited thinking about like how the cave system is supposed to work in this movie. Hmm. Oh, you know what? And, like I, the mining system. I did want to say that the location shooting really helps in that low budget way by like making the movie feel so yeah. authentic. Like it's so nice to see a real cave in one of these movies. Yeah. Oh, that's what real caves look like. Like I'm so used to movie caves. But like why did the creature bring Natalie like or is like all these caves connected in some sort of way? Well, it's almost like the creature followed them not in the caves, bringing Natalie with it. Yeah, and then was like, the snow. right. And then was like, oh, hey, a cave and like set up shop in there. Yeah, which is and like, like that just it's very weird and doesn't make sense. And my brain just short circuited. I guess uh, it was driven out of its original home because they blew that. They did cave blow up. it up. Yeah. They did blow it up. That's fair. Yeah. Um, this is a story about how like you shouldn't disrupt like the natural habitats <laughs> of animals. You brought this on yourselves. <laughs> um, so looking down from the wasp woman, right. um, my eyes fell upon Jujin Yukio Toko, half sure. human. Yeah. And it just felt a little similar mm -hmm. in vibe. Right. I don't know how. Sure. But it just felt feels the comparable. mountain setting yeah and the like half horror half something else um so i was like okay well i'll put this as my ceiling and then looking down <laughs> i have such a soft spot for um corman's attack of the crab monsters <laughs> at 112 sure but 
right below that are like House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein. And I was like, I think I have to give a bit of credit to like the monster design and like the idea behind what they were trying to go for with it to keep this above those Monster Valley movies. So my range was 107 down to um, 113, basically. Okay, I'm going to suggest a spot in your range. Cool. So I think that saying this is better than the Monster Rally movies makes sense because uh, those movies are never what you want them to be. Um, I think saying that this is better than Attack of the Crab Monsters makes sense because, like, I'm really sorry, Paul Blaisdell, but I think this guy made a better monster than you do. Um, did? Did. Anyways, above Attack of the Crab Monsters is Cat Girl, which is like a weird Bridie Murphy cat people ripoff. Above that is Revenge of the Creature, which is Creature from the Black Lagoon does the second half of King Kong, but is also just like so repetitive with the original once the creature gets loose to the point where it has the exact same ending. Yeah. Um, Above that is It Came From Outer Space, which is the one where the beholder alien in the cave is taking over people in the town. Yeah, let's not go above that. Exactly. That's sort of what I'm saying is like ab- that that monster design is is impeccable. Like yeah. it's fantastic. Exactly. So like I think above I think the originality in Beast from Haunted Cave puts it above Revenge of the Creature, but below it came from outer space. I like it. Cool. So entering the list at the new number 110 uh, is Beast from Haunted Cave from 1959, directed by Monty Hellman. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website at screamscenepodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can support the show by leaving us a rating or a review on one of those services. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can help the audience grow by telling a friend about this weird little show that we do. Or uh, if you have the means and really like what we do here, you can head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 level get access to regular bonus audio cut from past episodes. Patrons at the $10 level get access to like essays and reviews and short stories and kind of like weird little one-off projects that we've done over the years um but patrons at all levels do get to vote in our monthly horror adjacent bonus episode polls um our horror adjacent bonus episode for april is abbott and costello meet the invisible man for may the voting looks like uh you'll have to head to patreon to see Okay, I know that Zombies on Broadway was leading the pack, but if you want to influence that decision, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we go across the pond for a hammer horror film from Terrence Fisher. It is The Man Who Could Cheat Death, a remake of The Man in Half Moon Street, which oh. was like kind of a low-rent picture of dorian gray yeah interesting i i hope this is a case of me going finally some good fucking food right (laughs) well we will see you then creatures of the night bye bye